Good morning. Turning your Bibles to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We've been, uh, as a church, going through the book of Acts for uh, a number of months, and we find ourselves in the second missionary journey, somewhere around between 50 and 53 AD, and we are at a major jumping point that we'll talk about. But uh, good morning, I'm Scott, and uh, my wife and I, Diane, have uh, been uh, members here uh, a little over 10 years now. I still remember the first day walking in and seeing, seeing Rob and seeing Dan, probably like some of you did uh, as well. And um, we've been here for 10 years and appreciate the opportunity to speak this morning, especially a cool passage like uh, Lydia's conversion. So Acts chapter 16... If you will join with me, I want to, the passage is 11 through 15, but I want to start with 10 because I think it's important for us to try to understand what Luke is trying to make clear in his writing and in his narrative here. Remember Luke, who wrote the, the gospel of Luke, is the same Luke here. He is one of those uh, who is with the apostle Paul, and he's writing a firsthand narrative of what happened to them when they uh, when they invaded Europe. So Acts chapter 16, starting with verse 10. And when Paul had seen the vision, and you remember the vision that, that, that Joe talked about last week, when Paul, after Paul saw the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is God's word for us this morning. Let's pray. Father, your word is a lamp into our feet, a light into our path. It is the means by which your spirit molds us, teaches us, informs us, encourages us, convicts us, and yes, converts us. We're so thankful for you, for your word, for this message of the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. And as we see your gospel in, at work in the lives of real people in real time, in a real place, we thank you for that encouragement and that instruction. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in the book of Acts. I wanted to start out by, by reading a, a, a uh, paragraph from Michael Green's uh, book on the Acts. And he, he starts the book out with this paragraph. These crucial decades in world history, that is all it took, or three crucial decades in world history, that's all it took. In the years between AD 33 and AD 64, a new movement was born. In those 30 years, it got sufficient growth and credibility to become the largest religion the world has ever seen and to change the lives of hundreds of millions of people. It has spread into every corner of the globe and has more than 2 billion putative adherents. 
It has had an indelible impact on civilization, on culture, on education, on medicine, on freedom, and of course on the lives of countless people worldwide. And the seedbed for all of this, the time when it took decisive root, was in these three decades. It all began with a dozen men and a handful of women, and then the Spirit came. And that's kind of the introduction to this, to this passage, is in this passage, I think what Luke wants us to come away with is this thought that God, I better get my notes out so I say it right, that God miraculously changes lives and builds his church through the faithful use of ordinary means. God miraculously changes lives. He miraculously builds churches, and he does it through the faithful use of ordinary means, and you could add ordinary people. So this morning, I want to look at this passage. We want to look at this passage through three heads. First of all, we want to see that God sends his messengers and his workers. We want to see that God empowers that message. Then I want you to see that God plants a church. So those three things. First of all, God sends his messengers and his workers. Now, you're going to think through this. It's very, very unlikely. Think of D-Day, June 6th, 1944, when... when 110,000 Americans, Canadians, and Brits stormed the beach, the five beaches of Normandy. Think of how big that is and the momentity of that. Over, over the next month on those beaches, almost a million men and women came, came across and they invaded Europe. Now, this is not like that invasion, but in some respects, probably more momentous, had more cultural impact, more impact on Europe was this invasion that you see in front of you this morning than even D-Day. It was a very, very important invasion. The gospel is now coming out of Turkey, Asia, and it's going into Europe. Now, remember, for, for these guys, Turkey is, is really close to Jerusalem. And so as the Jews in the diaspora, as they spread and they bring their businesses and they build their synagogues, think of Turkey as being really close. You could get there by foot. It was close. And so as they're ministering in Turkey, in fact, Paul's from, from Tarsus, right? He's, from, he, he's sent by the church of Antioch. And so they're very comfortable in Turkey. God takes them out of that comfortability and says, I don't want you here. I want you across the water in Europe. And so they jump into Europe, and they jump into a, a very, very um, uncomfortable place. Philippi is not Asian culture. It's not Jewish culture. It's thoroughly Greek, and it's thoroughly Roman. So this, this group of missionaries, and we believe at this point it's Paul, and Silas, and Timothy, and Luke. Now, Silas has is, is, is got, there's a lot, we know a lot about him. Apparently, he was from Jerusalem. He was a prophet. It's said that he had the scars of suffering on him. He's one of those guys that after the council of Jerusalem, he's sent with Paul to be able to verify that when Paul and Barnabas go out to verify the message and the decision that was made at 
at Jerusalem. He's also known in, 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 by the name Silvanus. So Luke calls him Silas. Paul and, and Peter call him Silvanus. We know that he's a, he's a close ally, a close companion, a close ministry partner of the Apostle Paul. And eventually he goes with Peter, and we believe he's, the, he's actually the person who wrote down 1 Peter when the aged Peter um, dictated. So we've got Paul, we've got Silas, Timothy, and Luke, a, pretty, a group of Jewish men who come across on this D-Day into Europe. Now, it's an unlikely place. Luke tells us that the town of Philippi was a major city in the district and that it was a Roman colony. So think about it. It's a seaport. The second thing is it's on the Via Ignatia. So the Via Ignatia, the Romans were, were very, very famous for their roads. You know, when you think of Rome, think of the Rome Pax Romana, the Roman peace, think of the Roman roads. And we know that when we think of the hand of God and the spread of the gospel, the Greek language and the Roman roads, and what happens is the gospel spreads very, very quickly. So the Via Ignatia goes from the Aegean all the way from the Adriatic to the Aegean. It goes, it goes from Europe to basically a port which gets you to Rome. So it's the, it's the road that Rome uses to tie its empire together. So there's a lot of Commerce, things that happen in, in Philippi get to Rome pretty quickly. So it's a seaport, it's on the Roman road, it also is a Roman colony. So this area of, in, in history is very, very important around Philippi. Number one, uh, when Philip of Macedon named it after himself, when he fortified it about 300 years earlier. But in recent history, Octavian wins major battle and unifies the empire under him and takes the term Augustus after a battle that happens near Philippi. And after that battle, what happens is a lot of the Roman soldiers settle in Philippi and they are given privilege. It becomes a Roman colony. So think of a Roman colony. A Roman colony would, be, would have all of the privileges of a city in Italy. It has, it's free from taxation. It's able to rule itself and it has all of the prestige of Rome. So there's a Roman garrison there, lots of Roman soldiers. It's a thoroughly Roman seaport with everything that goes along with that. So it's a, it's a key place, but it's very, very non-Jewish. And in fact, in this period of time, remember, Claudius expels all of the Rome, all, all of the Jews from Rome. He outlaws any Jewish gathering and then expels them altogether from Rome somewhere in this time period, either just before or just after. So it's a Roman city. You know that they're going to align with everything Roman and everything that has to do with the emperor. So there's not a strong Jewish influence. And we, we get that when we know that Paul and, and Silas, we know that their normal way of ministry is to go to the Jews first and to the Greeks, right? They usually go to a synagogue but apparently there's no synagogue. So they spent some days in the city, checking out the city, and they finally do their first engagement with a group of women by a river about a mile out of town. So no synagogue, but they meet, they go to a prayer meeting on the Sabbath day near, near the river. Now, again, you wouldn't have expected that. And it's very interesting is just think through the way 
that they bring the gospel to Rome, they're not focusing on market penetration. They're not focusing on promotion. They come in very, very quietly. They watch very, very closely. And, they, and then they, without fanfare, without emotion, without publicity, in fact, they seem to shun publicity. If you, if you, as you read through the passage, you get the sense that that's not the way they wanted their ministry to be. They wanted it to be uncluttered with all of the societal and cultural things because they wanted to focus on the gospel. They wanted to focus on gospel conversation. And so they come in, you know, Paul tells the Corinthians, and remember in this missionary journey, they come across to Philippi, then they go to Thessalonica, then they go down to Berea, and then they split up and they end up at Athens and Corinth. And so think of, that's the second missionary journey. So if you think of that, Paul tells the Corinthians, he says, you know, when I came to you, I recognized that my message was offensive. I recognized that it was foolishness to the Greeks and Romans and that it was an offense to the Jews. I mean, the Jews were never going to be able to accept the fact that their Messiah was crucified and murdered. I mean, God's blessing obviously doesn't dwell on a man who hangs on a tree and is killed by Romans. Our Messiah would, would, would not blink an eye and wipe the Romans right off the face of the earth. They had a hard time. It was a stumbling block for them. And the Romans said, hey, we already beat him. We already beat him. We already killed him. And so it was foolishness to the Greeks and to the Romans, and it was a stumbling block to the Jews. And he says, and I didn't come to you with rhetoric. I didn't come to you with fancy words. I didn't come to you with wisdom. I came to you with Christ and Christ crucified. And that was offensive. But remember what he tells the Romans. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For what? It's the power of God. For what? For salvation. It's how God saves sinners. And so Paul is bringing the ministry of Christ crucified. He gets to Philippi. There's no synagogue. So he finds himself on the Sabbath day by a river, sitting down and having conversation with a group of God-fearing women. Now, they calls one out for sure, Lydia, among others. And it says that Lydia was a merchant, a seller of purple goods. That is, she's the purple, think of purple like a, a deep royal red. It was the sign of nobility. It was the color of the very ultra-rich. It's a very expensive dye from shells. And so she happened to be a person who sold red clothes and red berets and red, those things that were royal and that tied to uh, royalty. That's what she was. She was a merchant woman. And she is a, says she was a God worshiper. So at some point, she's a proselyte Jew from Thyatira. And she's there, and she's by the river with a group of women. And we don't know if they're there because of ceremonial cleansing or, why they're, or if they're there at the river because they want to get away from everybody and they don't want to be molested. We don't know what it is, but we know that they were there by the river, and that's where Paul and Luke and Timothy and Silas sit down with them, and they have a conversation. Now, a couple of things I want to point out that it's interesting that Paul or that, that uh, Luke, in the second missionary journey, makes a lot of references to women. And it's interesting that the Macedonian man who beckons them to Philippi 
And then their ministry is to Macedonian women, right? And so, it, it, so there's, a, there's a mention that, that Luke wants Theophilus to very clearly remember that God, the gospel comes, and it comes to Jew and Gentile alike, and it comes to men and women alike, and he wants to pr- show to Theophilus that God builds his church with women and with men. And that that is uh, an important part of this message. Look at 17, verses, 17 verse 4 at Thessalonica. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. Look over at verse 12 in Berea. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Look at verse 24. Let me make sure I got that. Um, Verse 34. Look at verse 34 at the very end. Now in Athens... But some men joined him and, and believed, among whom were Dionysus the Arapagite and a woman named Damaris. And then right over in chapter 18, notice very quickly in the first verses, it mentions Priscilla. So Luke wants the readers to know that God is not a respecter of people and that women and men are the foundation of this church, and they are integral to the support and the drive of the church. And in fact, the gospel comes to Lydia, and we're going to see Lydia uses her wealth and her position and her standing to be the heart and the nucleus of this new church at Philippi. But we'll see that as we go through. Now, it doesn't tell us what they're... So that's God sends his messengers and his workers... Number two, God empowers that message. The emphasis is on God's activity throughout here. God sent, God opened, God drove the ministry. And as as Luke is thinking of this, you know, he, he makes a point all through the gospel that it's God, that this work of conversion, this work of building the church, it's a heart work, but it's a God work, that it happens because of God's driving, because of God's work. If you think of, um, I'm getting ahead of myself, but think in Philippians, when Paul is writing the book, the letter of the Philippians, and he's thanking them very, very warmly, and he says, and I'm convinced that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. So Paul, like Luke, sees this emphasis on its God's work. It wasn't my words, alone. It wasn't my ideas. It wasn't my charisma. It wasn't our group. We didn't overpower. It was the hand of God. So, so look at the audience. The, the audience is a group of women that we know of, and they're gathered by the river, some of them Jewish proselytes. Now look at the response. Only a couple of words here, but it says, that one who heard us was a woman named Lydia. So think of one who listened intently, one who engaged with us, one who grabbed hold of us and was actively listening intently. There's a little bit of emphasis that says, and she was listening. So she is listening intently. The distractions of her life 
were put to the side, and she was focused on the message of Paul. We have, think about all the distractions that we have. Think of all that as the word of God comes to us and as it's preached, we have the distraction of life. We have the distraction of busyness. We have the distraction of uh, entertainment in all of its forms, from sports to movies, everything you can think of, right? We have the distraction of social media. We've got the distraction of work and calling and family and friends and relationships and problems and issues, all kinds of things that clutter our mind, even as we're sitting here talking. How many, of you, how many of you haven't been distracted? How many of you haven't had your watch or your phone buzz? How many of you have not been tempted to just make sure you understand exactly how the draft turned out? You know, how many of you are really, really want to make sure you understand how the NBA playoffs are going? I mean, there's all kinds of reasons, right? And they're all legitimate, not, but they're distractions, and they keep us from the message. Think of being a teenager today. How many obstacles are piled up between them and understanding and hearing the gospel? How many antagonistic messages? I mean, it's not cool to be a Christian on social media, is it? No, it's not. And so there's distractions. Lydia listens through the distractions, and she hears and she receives the message. And it says that Luke says that the Lord opened her heart. So Lydia is converted. That word conversion. Now, Christians spend a lot of time talking about the doctrine of salvation. It's very, very important to us, right? And it's important to us for a real reason. We really want to know that we are, and we want to be certain that we are aligned with God, what God actually said in his word about sin and about faith and about repentance and belief in the future. I mean, our whole lives, it's a life and death issue. And so it's very important to us. So theologians over the years, think of, first of all, Paul, who writes the book of Romans and the book of Hebrews, primarily just to make sure that, you've got the, that we've got the gospel right. But littered throughout the whole New Testament, that idea of salvation and redemption is, is all the way through. And so throughout the years, we have theologians that have put it all together, and then they take it apart piece by piece. And they take each part out, and they examine it, and they put it back into the, into the, to the, uh, into the doctrine, and then they pull another piece out. And they say, okay, this is adoption, and this is election, and this is, this is the atonement. And they take those pieces apart. So when you think of this whole doctrine of salvation, one, one man that, that, that I've read and been very influenced says, he divides it up and he says it's really redemption accomplished and redemption applied. It's redemption, salvation accomplished, salvation applied. Conversion is in the doctrine, is in redemption applied. Think of conversion as it's our, it's the believer's experience of the gospel. Conversion is the believer's experience of the gospel. And it usually has three parts. There's repentance, which is it's the idea of turning away from something. Turning away from something. A lot of times with repentance, with some people, there is a deep sense of sin, a deep sense of lostness, of detachment, of danger, of futility. And in that time, we turn away 
from the past. And think of 1 Thessalonians 1.9 where Paul, he's talking to the Thessalonians about their turning and he says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. So part of this conversion, and this is for everybody, is there's a turning away from something and then there's a turning to something. And that's the idea of faith and belief. Turning to something And remember, with faith, there's understanding, there's belief, and there's trust, the three elements of faith. Acts 20, verse 21, Paul, talking to the Ephesian elders, reminds them, he said, we testified to Jews and Gentiles of repentance toward God and the faith in Jesus Christ. We turn away from something, we turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the third part that we usually see in conversions is a public proclamation and an attachment to the body of Christ or to the people of God. Acts 2.42, remember after Pentecost and after Peter's preaching, it's they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, and service. So this is conversion. It's the believer's experience of salvation. Now, for it happens, these three elements are common, and I would say, pretty important, if not, if not absolutely important, parts of conversion. But everything else about conversion is different, right? People are different. The context is different. The way they come to Christ is different. It's a, there's a myriad of ways that people believe and come to Christ. A lot of times people think of conversions, they think of insider conversions. Insider conversions are those who are inside the church or inside the community. They know the stories, they've lived them, they've known about it their entire life, and they're insiders. And then there are others who are outsiders. There are those that didn't grow up in the church, that aren't familiar with the stories and the things of God, and they are converted. So you see conversions, you can classify them insider, outsider, You can classify them by suddenness and over time. It's almost on a continuum, right? There are some people that are knocked off their donkey, like Paul. And for some of you, it was that way. You were knocked off. Your life, you were knocked down. And you came to the reality of repentance and faith and attachment to the people of God. You came about it very suddenly. But there are others of us who it happens very, very gradually over time. And in fact, you may not be able to put your finger on a point in time where you, where you can say that's when it happened. You can put your finger on a time when you realized it and you kind of maybe settled it, but you're not really sure when it happened. John Murray gives the illustration that he said, you know, uh, conversion for some people, and probably the majority of people, is like um, waking up early in the morning and watching it turn from night to day. As the stars disappear, as the, as the sun slowly comes up, at some point you know it's dark and you know it's night, and at some point you know it's day. But can you tell what, at what precise moment it actually turned from night to day? Some of your conversions, and of, like mine, are like that where you just always have known, you've always accepted, and you came, but you came to a point where you said, I settle it, and, it, and it, it really is mine. It really is reflective of who I am. So conversions are different. They all have repentance, faith, and attachment to the people of God, but 
They're very, very different in the lives of believers. But the emphasis that Luke puts on it is that God opened her heart. Think of it, God pulled the louver doors open and exposed Lydia to, his, to, to her son. Think almost of those, that, if you remember, let's make a deal. It's like pulling back and seeing what's there. For Lydia, it, it was, her eyes were opened and it was the, the, the louvers were pulled back. And that's the way Luke sees it. And remember, that's the way Paul sees it being confident that this very thing, that he who started a good work in you will, will perform it and will complete it. He also says in Philippians um, that it's God that works in you to do his will. It's you that work hard, but it's God who works in you. So conversion, conversion stories like Lydia's, they're important to us. They're a gift to the church. They help us by informing us of how the gospel spreads. They're helpful to us because they illustrate how the power of God for salvation actually looks and how it works and how it works itself out. And we've seen conversion experiences. We've seen Cornelius. We've seen many different kinds of conversion experiences. We've talked about them. You may have heard them in public testimonies. They're important because it reminds us that God really miraculously saves people. He actually changes hearts. He changes minds. He gives faith. Faith is a gift of God, and it comes from him. And listening to conversion experiences help us. Reminding ourselves of our own conversion experience help us and remind us. They also encourage us, right? They encourage us, especially parents who work hard. You know, your families are your easiest mission field and they're your hardest mission field. They're easy because they're there and because a lot of times you have power, right? You have, you have the position power of the parent and it's easy, they're there. But it's also very difficult, right? Because they hear the gospel over and over and over and over and over, and at some point it may lose its bite and its grab on them. And they see your real life and struggles. They see who you are. They see the ups, they see the downs, they see the mistakes. And it's a hard mission field, but it's a, but it's a, a valuable mission field for you and for us. And we work hard at it. And you should be encouraged because that's the way God saves. That's the way God works. He takes his message through ordinary people, through ordinary means, in ordinary times, and he brings new life and he builds his church and he saves your loved ones through his gospel just the way he saved you. And that's the encouragement of these conversion stories is that it invites us, it encourages us. It also warns us if you're sitting here and you really don't know what I'm talking about. And you say, I've been listening to it my whole life, and yeah, 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 yeah. I'm a Christian because I come to church. Now, you're a Christian when you turn from your life and your idols and those things that you're relying on, and you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and you attach yourself to the people of God. That's conversion. Our conversion stories are important. They're also 
uh, one thing to warn, your, to warn us about conversion stories is two things that come to mind. Is first of all, I, I grew up in a church in, a, in an environment where when you came forward or when you made a decision, they gave you a sticker. And you wrote, that, you wrote on that sticker the time and the date and you signed it. And then you were told to put it in your Bible. And then, you were, and then it was said, hey, anytime you doubt, anytime you're in trouble, anytime things get bad, anytime you doubt, open your Bible and look at that, read that, and have assurance that you, that you are in God's hand. Now, we don't, I think that's wrong. I don't think it's bad to remember your conversion, but I think it's wrong to trust your conversion. We don't trust our conversion. We cr- trust Christ right? We're turning from all of our own self-righteousness, for all of our, for all of our self-dependence, um, and we're turning to Christ, and we're saying, I could never do these perfect, I could never be perfect. Be thou perfect. I can never do that. I can never have enough faith. I can never have enough belief. I can never have enough repentance. I can never feel good enough. That's why you have to turn to Christ, who already did it, who's perfect enough, whose who's sacrifice was sufficient, so sufficient that God has lifted him up to his right hand, to even today. So we don't want to trust our conversion. The second thing is, don't evaluate your conversion by somebody else's conversion. So again, growing up in the church, I heard conversion story after conversion story after conversion story. And sometimes people were, would say things like, I prayed, and I opened my eyes and the whole world looked different. And God moved me and showed me things I'd never seen before. And God changed, my whole world changed. I remember as a nine and a 10 year old laying in my bed at night and probably on my 50th prayer, sitting and waiting for God, I would pray. And then I would sit and I would wait. And would say, okay, God, do something. And it didn't. It didn't work that way. I didn't understand the figurative way that people were giving their conversions. So don't evaluate your conversion experience by somebody else's. You may feel like, hey, I didn't have a knock, off your, knock you off your horse conversion. It's just, it's just as much a miracle if it happened gradually over time in the home. So be encouraged. I told the, uh, I told the uh, first service, you know, as a young father, I was really, really bent on making sure that my kids from the earliest age uh, knew, knew scripture and knew, knew, the, knew the Bible and knew the stories. So we, would, we used the children's catechism and we started catechizing very early. Before, there was a, before I knew of the Baptist catechism, we had to take the children's, cat, children's catechism for Westminster, change the words. And I'll always remember my youngest son, he's about two, and I can remember saying, Matthew, who made you? And he would say, God. And I would say, what else, Matthew, what else did God make? And he would say, everything. And then I would say, why did God make you in everything? And he would say, for his own glory. <laughs> and I remember that. And I don't know, it, it, it's a treasure for us, you know, because of that catechizing. And I want you to be encouraged that that's the way God normally saves. Through the hard work of parents and grandparents and Sunday school teachers, of get planting the seed and watching it grow. 
So conversions are important. Matthew Henry said, when the heart is thus open to Christ, the ear is open to his word, the lips are opened in prayer, the hand is opened in charity, and the steps enlarged in all manner of gospel obedience. So Lydia is converted. She's saved. She heard, she expressed repentance and belief, and she's baptized. Notice, notice number three. God plants a church, and he plants a really good church. If you look at the book of Philippians, it's a, it's a pleasure to teach the book of Philippians. It's a pleasure to read it. Think of all of the great verses that you know. I know I can do all things through Christ which strengthen me. Think of all of the verses there. Lydia and her household are the first converts. Lydia brings the gospel back to her household, or her household's there, we don't know. They're baptized. And remember, baptism is a public acknowledgement of conversion. It's a display of the, of the story of that conversion, but baptism is a, corporate, is a corporate event, just like the Lord's table. It's a corporate event. It's done in the church. It's done as an attachment to the church. It's done as somebody wants to be baptized to signify their change from what they were to who they are, and they're immediately attached to the people of God. Baptism, you can see these baptisms happening. And then Lydia's insistent hospitality results. Remember, remember Paul. Paul tells the Corinthians and the Thessalonians. He says, listen, when I was there, I worked hard and I didn't take a dime from you guys. I worked hard and supported myself so that you would know that it was the gospel that, I was, that was important to us, not winning souls, building churches, and taking your money. It was very important. But in, but in Philippi, Lydia won't let him do that. Lydia prevails on him to the point where she says, listen, if I'm really a believer, then come to my house. If you really believe that I'm a believer and I'm faithful, then come stay in my house. And that's what happens. And her house becomes the center. We know when they get kicked out of Philippi in a couple of, uh, a couple of paragraphs, you can see that, that before they leave, they stop at Lydia's house. And so Lydia becomes, becomes the central part of this new gospel community in, in Philippi. Now, this church is a really good church. They end up, if you read the book of Philippians, there's some really cool things that, I would, that we could go over if we had time. In 2 Corinthians, when Paul is trying to shame the Corinthians, he says, listen, I have been supported through this whole missionary trip, and all of the efforts so far have been financed by the poverty of the Philippians and the Thessalonians the poverty of the Macedonian believers, they even gave to the offering for the saints in Jerusalem that were suffering. They're known for their hospitality. They're known for their, um, their giving and their service. The other thing is, is the Philippian church is tied to the Roman church. As the gospel's making itself told to Rome, when Paul's in chains, he starts talking about, hey, the gospel is making great inroads in the imperial guard, and some of Caesar's house greets you. And so this church becomes a very influential church, but it's based on ordinary people, ordinary message, in an ordinary place. God works miracles. So we have lots of conversion stories of our heroes. I think of Wesley's conversion, very, very historic, very, very cool. Augustine, that's, that's a very, if you, if you don't know Augustine's story, you gotta, you gotta 
pick it up and read it in, uh, in, in, uh, on, online or in the confessions. Uh, Spurgeon's conversion story, very, very cool. Lots of cool conversion stories. And yours may be cool and, you might, and yours may be um, not so cool. Doesn't matter, they're all miracles. They're all miracles. So as we conclude, I wanna, I wanna conclude with, a, 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 with two hymns. One that was written a long time ago and one that was written in the 70s about people reflecting on their conversion. Long may my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Now from the 70s, listen to this testimony. Like a foolish dreamer trying to build a highway to the sky, all my hopes would come tumbling down and I never knew just why. Until today, when you pulled away the clouds that hung like curtains on my eyes, well, I've been blind all these wasted years and I thought I was so wise, but then you took me by surprise. All my life I've been searching for that crazy missing part and with one touch, you just rolled away the stone that held my heart. And now I see that the answer was as easy as just asking you in. And I'm so sure I could never doubt your gentle touch again. It's like the power of the wind. Like waking up from the longest dream, how real it seemed until your love broke through. I've been lost in a fantasy that blinded me until your love broke through. This is God's word. Amen.